Amen, Father. You are indeed a good, good Father. I cannot help but be reminded of the truth that in one sense we can say that you have redeemed us because you want a family. In love, the scriptures say, you predestined us to adoption as sons and daughters personally to yourself. And we thank you, Jesus, that you made that possible through your death on the cross, your shed blood. And Holy Spirit, we thank you for living within us. You are that deposit guaranteeing our inheritance, heaven, that relationship, all of it. And we are all here because of you to worship you, to praise you, to be built up as we learn the word of God. And may this be all about you this morning. Holy Spirit, please strengthen me. Use the gift you've given me to edify the church. In Jesus' name we all pray. Amen. Take a seat. Yes, we will go back to being Bible Chapel this morning. We're going to look at a lot of verses. <clears throat> but I want to begin by something I discovered. Um, it's called de-churching. Ever heard that phrase? Who's heard that phrase? Okay. Um, just, I'm going to read this to you. It's from this uh, article that's on this book. Uh, about de-churching, Jim Davis and Michael Graham said knew something was up in their hometown, now catch this, of Orlando. Where is Orlando? And that is also known as, if you want to speak spiritually, that is in the Bible Belt. The Bible Belt. Okay. <clears throat> I don't know where the belt ends and begins. Does anyone know? I know it's not here. Okay. <laughs> We might be the armpit, for all I know, but wherever it is, the Bible Belt is. Anyways, they couldn't put their finger on it. At the time, both were pastors at Orlando Grace Church, an evangelical congregation, and saw a study showing that their community, well, listen to this, had the same percentage of evangelicals as less traditionally Christian cities, guess what they put, like New York and Seattle. In other words, the number of evangelicals in Orlando is about the same as what's in New York and in Seattle. Their city also ranked low on a list of Bible-minded cities, with a profile more akin to cities with secular reputations than Bible-built communities like Birmingham, Alabama, or Nashville. Which didn't make any sense to them. Orlando was the home to the headquarters of Crew, who used to be Campus Crusade for Christ, along with Wycliffe Bible Translators and other major Christian nonprofits, as well as booming and influential megachurches like First Baptist and Northland Church. In Orlando felt different than New York or Seattle. Then it hit us. It's because our people used to go to church. David said he and Graham knew a number of people who had stopped going to church. And the two pastors started wondering how common that was, and they began looking for data, and while there were studies of the so-called nuns, now what are the religious nuns? 
not Catholic, N-U-N-S, N-O-N-E-S. Those are people who do not uh, identify with any faith group. This is a group that will probably, if things don't change in almost less than 50 years in 2070, there'll be more religious nuns than there will be Christians in America if the trend doesn't change. But he said there was no data that, uh, that dealt with uh, church coin habits. So eventually they decided to do one of their own. Uh, that study combined with other data about Americans, America's changing religious landscape uh, led them to a sobering conclusion. This is more people, and they're listening to this. This will probably blow you away if you didn't know this already. More people have left the church in the last 25 years than all the new people who became Christians from the first great awakening, the second great awakening, and Billy Graham crusades combined. Davis and Graham write in their book, The Great Deterching, Who's Leaving, Why Are They Going, and What Will It Take to Bring Them Back? And the study included a survey of just over a thousand Americans to determine the scope of dechurching, which was defined as having attended service at least once a month in the past and now attending less than once a year. The initial survey found that about 15% of Americans are dechurched, but Birch said the book surveys build on previous studies of the nuns as well as study NONES, as well as studies showing the decline of congregational life in the United States. For example, the 2020 Faith Communities Today's study, this is again shocking, found that the median congregation in the United States stood at 65 people. Across the United States, that's the average church size. It was down from 137 people in attendance two decades ago. Now, if you add the COVID pandemic on top of it, uh, that the median congregation in 2023 is now down to just 60 people. The dechurching study eventually yielded profiles of different kinds of dechurched Americans. You have cultural Christians. Those are people who attended church in the past but had little knowledge about the Christian faith. Okay? And I'm going to go out and say that that is probably what fills most churches today, especially the larger churches who are mainly attracting or entertaining, but they're not really discipling which is why a lot of those churches after the pandemic have never recovered. Remember the story I told you about the church? I think it's a church of God. There was 4,000 members at an entertainment model. After the pandemic, they're struggling to have 1,000 members. Uh, mainstream evangelicals is a second category, a group of mostly younger dropouts. A third category is ex-evangelicals, an older group who had often been harmed by churches and other Christian institutions. The fourth is called dechurched BIPOC Americans. You know what that is, black, indigenous, people of color. They were overwhelmingly black and male that have left the church. And then you have dechurched mainline Protestants and Catholics who had much in common despite their theological differences. Now, this is what the data showed. I think I put this up here. This is the cultural Christians. They left in part. Look at these reasons, Okay. Their friends weren't there. And you, and you can analyze what these reasons are, and if you break it down, 
it just wasn't convenient to attend anymore. Um, of course, this group would have the gender identity. In other words, you had to accept their gender, whatever it was. And of course, if there was a church scandal. You'll see a pattern here as we go through these. That's the cultural Christians, why they left. Here are the mainstream evangelicals. They dropped out because they moved. Again, the services were inconvenient. I mean, there are church services on Wednesday nights. There are church services on some on Friday. A lot of churches shut on Saturday and on Sunday. What, what's convenient for you? Uh, they did not feel much love in the church. Okay? So if they're not moving, they want a convenient time and they want to feel loved. How do you pastor that? Okay, evangelical, ex-evangelicals in this study left because they did not fit in, uh, did not feel much love in the congregation. See that again. They have negative experiences with evangelicals. There are people that have left every church, including this church. They've had bad experiences here that no longer attend here anymore. Uh, and they no longer believed. Okay? And let me just say, if they are not attending, this last one, obviously, they're not a believer then. They never were. Most of these people, if they're not coming anymore, and it's a long-term pattern, let's just be honest, they never were believers to begin with. Because you're going to stay, you're going to remain in the faith. You're going to continue in the faith. Okay, you have the the BIPOC de-churched Americans left in the early 20s because they did not fit in. Again, we see this, and they've had bad experiences. So you're, you're seeing these, <clears throat> you know. Let me just say this about had bad experiences. The church is an ark, okay? Think of it that way. And Noah's ark, was it pretty on the inside? No. But they made it. They survived. Okay? Mainline Protestants, and you would include also Catholics in this, left because they had moved. Uh, and there are plenty of people that have left this church since they've been here that just have retired and moved on because it's just too expensive to live here. Or they're tired of the blue state and all the policies. Okay? <clears throat> they had other priorities, and they did not fit in. So we're seeing some patterns here that you can see. Now, we're going to look at this morning, we're going to define the church and what it is, and I think in the definition of the church, you will see where that sort of butts up against the reasons why. Uh, I mean, this, these church-going habits and why they're not coming, this is basically revealing reasons why people go to church. Okay? This is what you're seeing here, really, and I'll explain that in a moment. Let's define the church, okay? This is a definition from my uh, systematic theology professor, Wayne Grudem, and it's a simple definition, and it's an accurate definition. It's biblical and everything. So the church is a community of all true believers for all time. That, in essence, is what the church is. And the first thing I want you to see about this definition is the church is made up of people who are truly saved. What does it say that Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Okay? It is for these people 
that Christ died to redeem that make up the church, okay? People who are truly, genuinely believers. And we also know that if Christ died for them, he has a reason, because he's going to build the church. Matthew 16, 18, and I tell you, you are Peter, and what? On this rock, I will build my church. So Jesus Christ will build his church, and his church is made up of people that he died for. And you see throughout history, and even in the very beginning of the church, that's exactly what he did. Acts 2.28, the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. And it says, you just don't hear this language anymore, do you? Why is your church growing? Why is it large? And they will point to, well, we changed our name. I've heard that as a reason. We changed our sign. We changed the way we worship. We got a new pastor. We focused on kids. A billion reasons, and that's why you have these church growth books. Churches only grow because God brings the growth. He's the one who adds to their numbers. And most churches in America aren't growing. What are they doing? If they're not declining or they're not out of existence, they simply are experiencing what is called transfer growth. People from other churches that are offended or for whatever reason, because they're leaving, they go to another church. We call them consumer Christians, okay? But not this early church. The Lord added what? To their number, day by day, those who were being saved, okay? Now, I want you to notice that all these verses that I just quoted to you, and we'll get to some verses that you'll look up in a minute here, uh, are from the New Testament, but I want to be clear about something that I think that will blow you away, or at least maybe new to you, uh, that the church has always existed even in the Old Testament. Now, get your Bibles out, turn to Acts chapter 7, or get your phone or tablet out, okay? Verse 38, this is Stephen speaking uh, of the church when arguing with the religious leaders about Moses and the Israelites in the wilderness just before Stephen was stoned to death, okay? And in the New American Standard of Acts 7, verse 38, we find this. It says this, Stephen speaking, this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai and who was with our fathers, and he received living oracles to pass on to you. Now, it seems to be a rather insignificant verse, but I would highlight the word congregation. I don't know if you have a New American Standard, or an NIV, New International Version, or an English Standard Version. Whatever it is, here it is translated, and you can look up here now, in the King James Version. The word congregation is replaced with what word? Church. And he is speaking of what happening? In the wilderness. <laughs> At the base of the mountain, there is the people, Israel. And up in the mountain is this Moses, okay, and receiving these oracles and so on. And what does he call the, the congregation? It's a church. It's a church. Okay? Now, why would Stephen call the Israelites who assembled together in the wilderness, a congregation or a church. 
it is because the word congregation in the Hebrew, and the Old Testament was written in the Hebrew, is translated with the Greek term ecclesiasio for church in the Greek, the New Testament. And all it simply means is to gather together or to summon an assembly. See, this is what God did in the Old Testament. You can just listen to this verse. You can write it down if you want. It's Deuteronomy 4.10. This is God in the Old Testament calling the people together. It says, Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, when the Lord said to me, Assemble the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children. Let me rephrase that. It says, Instead of assemble the people to me, call the church. Get the church together. So both, I want you to see, in the Old and the New Testament, God calls a people to to assemble together and to worship him. So take a look around. What are we doing here today? Assembling together and worshiping him, okay? And this is Bible Chapel. We could name it Bible Church, whatever you want to call it. It still is, by definition, church, okay? Now, let's take a moment and revisit the five groups of people that make up the de-churched. Okay, there's the cultural Christians, the mainstream evangelicals, ex-evangelicals, de-churched BIPOC Americans, and de-churched mainline Protestants and Catholics. Now, they remind me of, and the reasons why they're no longer going to church, of this woman from X, which is formerly known as Twitter. I'm going to read to you, and it's called A Day in the Life of a Single Woman Who Doesn't Believe in Marriage or Want Children. Just listen to what she uh, put on there. And it's abbreviated because it was a little bit longer. This is what she she put in this video. I spent most of my adult life in a long-term partnership that was safe and comfortable. But deep down, I was starving for emotional connection. For years, I ignored my gut feeling that I was deeply unhappy and hoped it would somehow magically get better. At the time, I couldn't fathom being happy, single, because I didn't know it was a possibility. I'd never seen it represented before. Most women I knew were either in a relationship or wanted one. Leaving was incredibly scary, but there was not a single morsel of regret. In other words, she was in a relationship for a while, it wasn't working out, and she wanted to try being single, okay? Now, the reality is is that every other woman that she knew wanted to what? Be in a relationship and to get married, well, why? Be fruitful, <laughs> multiply, fill your, it's not good to be alone. Now, there are those that are called to singleness, don't get me wrong, okay? Listen to what she says. Now I wake up every single day, now she's single, with immense gratitude that I am no longer desperately trying to force an intimate connection with someone who can't reciprocate. In the current political and economic climate, There is no guarantee that I can successfully raise a child with the life of abundance they deserve. Yeah, that's okay. I get that. I'm enjoying spending my hard-earned money on me. 
until I meet someone who can lift me up and add value to my life, I refuse to settle. We're seeing a pattern here now, aren't we? And if the word narcissist comes to your mind, then that's what's you're going to, that's an accurate picture. I am not worried if a man will find me attractive when I am older or about repopulating the planet. And I'm also not worried about dying alone. Statistically, women live longer than men and having a child just so they can hold my hand on my deathbed feels selfish and unsustainable. Now, here's the kicker. This just blew me away. My ancestors sacrificed a lot for me to exercise the privilege of freedom and choice, and I choose to honor their legacy by putting myself first every single day. My ancestors, who are her ancestors? Everybody who fought and died for this country, in her understanding, did it for her so that she can spend what? Honor their legacy by putting myself first every day. Do you really think that that's what our founding fathers had in mind? This is classic narcissism. Now, there again, there's nothing wrong with someone who wants to be single and aren't getting in a relationship. I get it. But the idea here is, is why does this lady remind me of the five different groups of people? Well, the reasons that the five groups gave for not attending church had a common theme. It was self. It was what they weren't getting out of church. Church was about what they weren't getting, and here's the key, as opposed to about what they should be doing, giving themselves away in the worship of God. It is a completely different mindset and attitude. And it's something that I and Erica struggled with when we were in ministry. You see, when we served with Camp Crusade back in the, the 90s, before the church was really in decline, I mean, we were, we had heard Tony Evans speak, okay, Henry Blackaby, John Piper. We had the, the creme of the crop that would speak to us at these conferences. We had very gifted teachers, and, and, and you know, because Cape Crusade drew the, the, the cream of the crop amongst the Christians, which at the time it was the premier, you know, parachurch ministry in the world. And so we got to, to hear this. Then we had gifted speakers within the ministry as well, okay? And then we would be committed to a local church when we go to church. Do you think that the church or the pastor there could speak at that level as these top people? No. And we saw that the church was messy, okay? It wasn't professional, uh, buildings were often ugly and not kept up in good shape and so on and so forth, okay? And so we would sit around in a staff meeting, and I'll never forget this, sitting around there, and we were all complaining about where we were going to go to church. We were serving in Bowling Green, Ohio. And we'd go from church to church to church because we were tired by the time Sunday came around. We just wanted to be fed, and it just, our needs weren't being met. And finally, an older staff member said, and he had the courage to speak up and say, you are going to church for the wrong reasons. You have to go to serve, to give yourself. 
than to receive. Now, if that happens to spirit-filled believers that are serving and giving themselves away during the week, how much more do you think it will happen to your average churchgoer that doesn't even have the training and the teaching that we had? You know, I can't meet your needs. <laughs> this church can't meet your needs. Forget it. You have to come here to serve and to use the gifts that God has given you. Okay? That's why I think a biblical understanding of a church is so helpful. And I can tell you that until that switch goes off in your head, you'll probably be nothing more than a spiritual parasite in the church. Coming in, sucking the resources, and giving very little, if anything, back to the real life and ministry of the church. So let's continue. I need to explain what the church is in even greater detail real quick, and it's what we call the invisible, invisible church. Turn your Bibles to Matthew 13, verses 24 through 30. I'm going to read this to you. This is a good picture, I think, of what illustrates the invisible, invisible church. Matthew 13. Starting in verse 24. The parable of the, of the wheat and the tares. It says, Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go up and gather them? But he said, No, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First, gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up but gather the wheat into my barn. Now, before I go any further, I want to clarify something here about the difference between the kingdom and the church. This passage speaks of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. It's basically the same thing. The key is the, the, the word kingdom. In the Greek, it's the word basilia. And it means to rule or reign. This is why the kingdom can be defined as this by R.C. Sproul. The kingdom of God is wherever God reigns. Okay, if there's a believer that is not in church today, okay, and they're at work, he's a believer, the kingdom of God is there because he's reigning in that person's heart, okay? But it's wherever God reigns, and since he reigns everywhere, the kingdom of God is everywhere. And notice in this parable that there's this, the kingdom is everywhere, and he sows his wheat and then someone else comes in. It's really referencing kind of the world in a sense, but it's really the, the kingdom. Now, within God's rule, within his kingdom, there exists the church. Okay? And while there are similarities between the kingdom and the church, there are differences, and I want you to understand something, that the kingdom and the church are not the same. This parable tells us that in God's kingdom, 
and subsequently within his church, there are wheat, and the wheat refers to who? Believers. And tares, unbelievers. This gives rise to the terms invisible, invisible church. Think of them as this way, and once again, I will quote Wayne Grudem here, the invisible church is a church as God sees it. God has the ability to look into your heart. I don't. He knows who's a true believer and who isn't. Now, in my mind, I'm going to say and give you the benefit of the doubt, everybody here is a believer, even though it may not be, but that's the visible church. The church as Christians on earth see it. Now, this has played out in history, the, the idea of a visible and invisible church. I want you to look at Paul's instructions to Timothy in the days of the early church. Just listen to this. This is in 2 Timothy 2, 16 through 19. He says this, But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Phileas. Did I put this up there or not? I did not. Okay. Men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal, the Lord knows who are his. That's 2 Timothy 2, 16 through 19. So in other words, this is the church at Ephesus, I believe he's talking to, to Timothy, who's pastoring it. Within the church, attending were Hominius and Philetus. And eventually they became false teachers. And it, Paul says they strayed from the truth. They fell away. And they began teaching that the resurrection had already taken place, and they're upsetting the faith of some. So in the very beginning of the church, you had people that were believers in the church and people that were unbelievers. But the key point is the end of, of verse 19. The Lord knows who are his. Now, it is plainly obvious, but it must be said that if you are not in the church, if you're not a, a, a truly saved, genuine believer, you're not going to be in the kingdom. But it was John Calvin who said it best, that the task of the church is to make the invisible kingdom visible. And we do that by living in such a way that we bear witness to the reality of the kingship of Christ in our jobs, in our families, our schools, and even our checkbooks. In other words, is you make God evident, and he'll be evident if you are what? This is for my Sunday school. You're strengthened with power by the Holy Spirit, right? And then you have the ability to make him Lord over every area of your heart. And then you demonstrate that by a loving life. Okay? But he is Lord over every area of your life. Okay? You're demonstrating the kingdom of God as it reigns within you and in the world. Now let's look at the explanation of the parable of the tares in wheat in verse, starting in verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, again, Matthew 13, 36 43. He left the crowds, went into the house, and the disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he said, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man, and the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, 
and the tares are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. I love this as a pastor, as a teacher. I don't have to explain this to you. <laughs> Jesus does it. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, and when will that happen? End of the age, second coming, and the reapers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom, and who's in his kingdom? All stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness. And will throw them into the furnace of fire in that place there will be weeping and gnashing teeth. Let me just rephrase this. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom and in his church. All stumbling blocks. In his church, those who commit lawlessness. Do you know of any stumbling blocks in a church? Any people that, in the church that commit lawlessness? Yeah. Verse 43. The righteous, that's the believers, will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Now watch this. From the same chapter, we find another example of the invisible, invisible church. Go to verse 3 of Matthew 13. And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. Others fell in the rocky places, and they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell in the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. So in other words, what are we seeing here? Four different responses to the gospel that is being presented, okay? There's some that hear the gospel and it doesn't enter their hearts, they don't understand it. Let me give you another example of this. You might remember this story, but I never forgot this because it illustrates this. The guy who discipled me in college, he and the campus director were out sharing their faith at Ohio University back in the early 90s. And they knocked on this one door on West Green and the student opened up and they were able to share the gospel with this guy, and he was this close to making a decision for Christ. He just needed to take that one final step. He understood everything. It was clear that God was at work in his life, okay? And he just needed a little time to think about it, okay? So he was this close. They leave, go a few doors down, find another guy. And, and these are smart, college-educated you know, you know, kids, and they begin to share the gospel with this guy. And the simple concept of God loves you and wants to be in a relationship with you, your sin is a barrier to that. Jesus Christ is the provision for your sin, and you must receive or surrender to him to receive eternal life. That simple concept, which was understood by that first young man, was unable to be grasped or understood by that second young man. Well, what's the difference? God had opened the mind of one and not the other, okay? So the seed that fell on the first man, 
that's assuming he became a Christian because he was that close, he understood it. This first, the second guy didn't understand it. There are people that will not understand the gospel when you share it with them. That's the first one, the seed that falls on the side of the ground. Then he gets three other types of, of heart conditions. Okay? You see that? The rocky places. They're not much soil, but immediately they spring up, and because they had no depth of soil, when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. I can tell you an example of that. I got to share my faith with an, uh, my freshman year with a young man named Jeff Glaze who came into our room, saw four spiritual laws, said he recognized that, and I shared the gospel with him, and right then and there, he prayed to receive Christ. And he got involved late in the spring of 1989 with our ministry. He went, came to the meetings, he went to the, uh, we went to, on a, went to King's Island, I think, on a outing. He was with us, okay? He even started coming to a Bible study. But the problem with someone that comes to Christ and some of these kids that we deal with in campus ministry, when they go home, they don't have a strong support. They may not even go to church. He never came back. I, I don't, if he came back to school, which I think he did, we never saw him again. He received it. It didn't last. Then there are those that hear the gospel, okay, but the worries of life, they get distracted. It doesn't do anything. Only one, 25% of the people that hear the gospel according to Jesus understand it, take it, and produce fruit. Okay? You see that within God's kingdom, and because the church is in his kingdom, you see that especially in the church. Because where do most people hear the gospel for the first time? It's in the church. Now, once again, Jesus explains this parable. Let's look at verses 18 through 23. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one in whom the seed was sown beside the road. The one in whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is a man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Let me say it to you, person number two and person number three, do they, are they in the church? Do they attend church? They did. And so when they were in the church, the pastor would see them and hear their story and would assume that they would be believers. But God knows who's in his church, and he can look into your heart, and he knows who is a believer and who isn't. Thus, the visible and invisible church. You want to be the one on whom the seeds was sown in the good soil. You hear it, you understand it, you bear fruit, and it brings forth some hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. Now, let's close real quick here. Not only is the church visible and invisible, it's also local and universal. And what I mean by that? Here's the key. In the New Testament, the word church is applied to a group of believers at any level. 
So it can be a small group meeting in a home. That is the church, Romans 16, 3 through 5. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risked their own necks, to whom not only did I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles, watch this, also greet the church that is in their house. Okay? You can have a church that's in a city. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord and ours. So there's a big church in the city, or a church in the city, Corinthian church. There's the church, you can call the church, in a region. Acts 9.31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It continued to increase. So all throughout Judea and Galilee and Samaria is called the church. So the church is a region, the church is a, can be a church in a city, and it can be a church that meets in a small group or in a home. There are more, look at these metaphors for the church as well. Because remember last week, we think the church is a building, and I tried to destroy that idea. It's more than that. It's a family. It's branches on a vine, an olive tree, a field of crops, a harvest, living stones, a holy priesthood, God's house, the pillar and bulwark of the truth, and of course it is the body of Christ. So we just were able to get through this morning a definition of the church. And why do we come to church? To get your needs met? You're there to worship him and to serve him with the use of your gifts. Okay? So, what I want you to do this week, worship him, praise him, okay? Every day. Amen? All right. Why don't you stand with me, and I will close with this song. Father, we thank you for this morning, for the opportunity to worship you, to gather together in obedience to your commands. I pray that people have learned about you as the word of God was taught. I pray that people, most importantly, fall more in love with you. Because that is the first and greatest commandment, to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Make us those kind of people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.